encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 6. In your Old Testament, 2 Samuel 6. Last week in 2 Samuel 5, we found two very important things. A king in a city. Just not any normal king and just not any normal city. The king was David. And David's ascending to the throne over a unified Israel, looking back, reminded David and reminds us that God always does what he says he will do. And David ascending to the throne over a unified Israel, looking forward, is the beginning of what God's program is for not only David and his descendants, for us as well, as David promised that one of his descendants will sit on his throne forever and ever over a kingdom of peace. We know from the whole council of Scripture that that descendant is Jesus himself, the Messiah, the anointed one, the long-awaited one that Scripture and God's program looks to as the culmination of his salvation history. Also, last week in chapter 5, we saw David move the kingdom capital from Hebron in Judah, in the southern portion of Israel, to, in a sense, a neutral site, Jerusalem. In this new unified kingdom, north and south together, a very strategic political move on the part of David, bringing the capital to a more central location where all of Israel could emotionally, physically gather underneath this new rule of David. But what we're going to see this morning in 2 Samuel 6 makes the political significance of Jerusalem pale in comparison to the spiritual significance of Jerusalem. Because today in chapter 6, we are going to see King David bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now those of you who remember your Old Testament know that the Ark of the Covenant is a box. It's a box overlaid with gold, with a gold overlaid cover, and upon that cover are two gold statuettes of of cherubs, or cherubim in the plural. And we're going to see that God promised Israel, even though he is spirit and present everywhere, that he would reside above those cherubim as his throne, so that where the ark is, God is. And as Israel will welcome the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem, what they are really doing is welcoming God into their presence. We're going to read the chapter together. I encourage you to follow along with me in your copy of the scripture. Second Samuel chapter 6, starting to read in verse 1. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. 
They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood, with lyres and harps and tambourines, castanets and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and sound of trumpet. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both to men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. But when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones, shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over all the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. And it will be more lightly esteemed than this. And it will be humbled in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. As David brings the Ark of the Covenant, this symbol of God's presence with his people to Jerusalem. This chapter is really much more than the account 
of this sacred box. Rather, it's an account describing how a people are to live when a holy, powerful God of blessing is dwelling among them. It's all about living in the presence of the Lord. What's it mean to live in the presence of the Lord? As a New Testament Christian, the New Testament tells us we not only have God dwelling among us, we have God dwelling in us, in the person of the Spirit of God. What does it mean to dwell in God's presence? And even further, what does it mean to have a holy, powerful God of blessing dwelling in our presence? And we're going to see this morning when a holy God dwells among his people, his people must do what God wants done God's way. You see, for God, it's not just important what we do. It's also important how we do it. You see, when a holy God lives in the midst of his people, it calls for radical obedience. I was a kid in the 1960s and 1970s. And I watched 1960s and 1970s television on our little black and white. You know what frustrated me the most about the Watergate hearings? When I came home from school, they preempted the airing of Gilligan's Island. used to tick me off. All those stupid Watergate hearings, I can't watch Gilligan. But there's a lot of benefits to growing up in the 60s and 70s. I can go to a McDonald's and I can say, I would like two all-beef patty special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, on a sesame seed bun. I know what, how to make a Big Mac. And I know, and many of you know, if we go to Burger King, we can say, hold the pickles, hold the lettuce, special orders, don't upset us. All that we all, hold the pickles, hold the lettuce, special orders, don't upset us. All we ask is that you let us serve it your way. We know those important things. Now the problem is that that slogan has become indicative of our culture. We want everything our way. It it has become almost the banner over how we think that everything needs to be a special order all surrounded surrounding me. And one of the things that we're going to see when a holy God lives in our midst, the me has to be set aside. Because God's holiness calls God's people to do God's will, God's way. God's holiness calls God's people to do God's will, God's way. And that's what we see here in 2 Samuel 
chapter 6. We're going to look at this passage in two parts. First of all, in the first 11 verses, we see God's holiness really demonstrated for us. And then in verses 12 through 23, we're going to see God's power and His blessing poured out among a people when God is able to live among them. First of all, we see God's holiness. We're going to see that when a holy God dwells among His people, His people must take His holiness seriously. We come to verse 1, and we see David gathering together his choice warriors, his mighty men of valor, 30,000 of them, with the sole purpose of going to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now remember last week in 2 Samuel chapter 5, the second half of the chapter records for us that David and his forces defeated the Philistines twice. And we saw in chapter 5 verse 21 that the Philistines abandoned their idols there. They were in such a state of disarray and defeat that they left their idols, but those carvings of wood and metal that they thought gave them power, they left them behind. Most likely David gathered them and destroyed them, demonstrating their utmost victory. David now realizes the Philistines are probably going to try a counterattack. They want to hit Israel where it hurts. We know from 1 Samuel chapter 4 that once before the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and held it for seven months. So here David, fully aware of that, realizes the need to bring this, the probably the most important symbol of God's presence that they had, the Ark of the Covenant, this box that contained a vial of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, the, the tablets of the Ten Commandments inside this box that God promised to always to have His presence be with. They saw that as vulnerable. And David here is setting out with these 30,000 men to go get it. Now, we know from other parts of Scripture that the Ark of the Covenant has not been in Israel's central place of worship for like a hundred years. It's been separated. The last 20 years, the Ark of the Covenant has been in a city called Kiriath-Jerim. It's the same city referred to here in verse 2 as Baal-Judah. Same city. We know in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, we, we read this. It says... And the men of Kiriath Jerem came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill, consecrated Eliezer his son to keep the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark remained at Kiriath Jerem, the time that was long, it was 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented before the Lord. So from the time that the prophet Samuel was a little boy to now, and this is taking place in chapter 6, it's been 20 years that the Ark of the Covenant has been in this guy's private home. We also are reminded in Exodus chapter 25, verse 22, 
that the Ark of the Covenant is that place where God promised to make himself present amongst his people. And in chapter 25, verse 22 of the book of Exodus is, Therefore I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. You see, God's presence came with the Ark of the Covenant. To have the Ark of the Covenant in your midst is to have God in your midst, in the eyes of Israel. It was such a holy, sacred piece of furniture that we read here in Second Samuel chapter 6 that its full name down here in, in, in verse 2 could have been something to the, it says called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. It, it, it the, its full name would have been something like the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who is enthroned between the cherubim. It's a very long title. So they call it the Ark of God or the Ark of the Covenant. So here we find David. 30,000 troops going to bring, in a sense, God's presence back in the midst of his people as a nation. And it tells us in verse 3 that they loaded on a cart pulled by oxen. And in verse 5 it says, David and the house of Israel are celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments. But then in verses 6 through 11, tragedy hits. And we are reminded that God's holiness calls God's people to do God's will, God's way. Not my way. Not your way. We find that oxen-drawn cart, when it gets near the threshing floor of Nacon in verse 6, the oxen stumble and almost dump the Ark of the Covenant out of the cart onto the ground. And there's this guy named Uzzah who's accompanying the Ark of the Covenant. And he reaches out to try to stabilize the Ark of the Covenant and God strikes him dead. Boom! Immediately. Verse 7, The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah and God struck him down there for his irreverence and he died there by the Ark of God. And David's mad. It says, David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. The outburst against Uzzah. David's not only mad, he's fearful. If God struck down Uzzah for simply trying to stabilize the Ark of the Covenant and struck him dead, how can I possibly have the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem in our midst So David, fearful, leaves the ark about 10 miles outside of Jerusalem at another guy's house, a guy named Obed-Edom. Now we look at these verses and we think, wow, that's pretty tough. I mean, Uzzah was just trying to help. But we can't look at this chapter without being reminded of everything that's come before it. And what's come before it has been clear. 
that God's holiness calls for God's people to do God's will, God's way. And when God first gave directions on for Israel to build this Ark of the Covenant, He gave them very specific directions. And in Exodus chapter 25, verse 14, He told Israel that when they build that Ark, they should attach gold rings to it. We see in Exodus chapter 25, verse 14, You shall put poles into the rings on the sides of the Ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. You shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. So God's design was that the ark was to be carried on the shoulders of the priest, the the descendants of Levi, via these poles that would rest on their shoulders and go through these gold rings that were attached to the side of the ark. What did David do? Put the ark in a cart drawn by oxen. We also know from the book of Numbers chapter 4 that as the descendants of Levi carried the ark, once they had started to transport it, they could not touch it or they would die. Numbers chapter 4 verse 5 says, When the camp sets out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and they shall take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then down in verse 15 it says, When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set out, After that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. See, God has been very clear. The Ark of the Covenant is to be carried via poles by descendants of Levi, and you are not to touch it once the transfer has begun. David put the Ark on a cart drawn by oxen. And this guy Uzzah demonstrates that he didn't really take God's holiness serious. Because as the ark started to fall, he reaches out and touches it, even though God has clearly delineated his will. You see, God's holiness calls God's people to do God's will God's way. This week in the Wall Street Journal on Thursday, there was an interesting article about the Seder, this this uh, Jewish meal that kicks off the observance of the Passover. And lest, as I read this, you think that I'm picking on Judaism Christian churches across the United States are following a very similar pattern. The title of the article is, Why is this Seder different from all others? And certain synagogues have started offering what they call a man's Seder. It's steak and scotch. No dessert and no girly drinks. Here's some excerpts of the article. The goal is simple, to teach men about the Passover Seder, including how to run one and engage them more in the Jewish faith. 
The ritual meal at the beginning of Passover involves chants, readings, and blessings, along with an ample dinner. Men historically led the Seder, which still holds true in some wings of Judaism, but some men aren't sure what to do, rabbis say. Held a few days before the holiday, the mock Seder, or staken Seder, as some sponsoring rabbis call them, are a modern twist on the model the Seder's synagogues have sponsored. These promise flowing alcohol, macho food, and male bonding, along with some religious instruction, although that last one can get a bit lost at some of the events. The Scots drinking can get a little wild, so you can't hear the rabbi talking, Mr. Finling says, recalling other male-only satyrs he's attended. Rabbis behind these guys only events, which have spread to cities including Cleveland, Atlanta, Houston, Potomac, Maryland, East Brunswick, New Jersey, say they helped attract Jewish men who've dropped out of synagogues and other forms of Jewish life. It's a creative way to get Jewish men to be more engaged with their faith. The point is we're all trying to figure out how to engage people. I don't care how we bring them in. Sunday night, Congregation Beth Shalom in Potomac, Maryland, fielded a crowd of 480 men for its Guys' Night Out and Seder Summit. It was a mob scene, with men lining up at one of several scotch stations with their commemorative gift glasses. They could also partake from a buffet tables laden with heaps of ribs, fried chicken, and hot dogs. It wasn't all about the booze and food. At some point, the men filed into the sanctuary to hear the rabbi speak about Passover. Men are deserting synagogues, says Jonathan Sarna. Some of this male bonding is designed to reinforce the sense that the synagogue is a place for men. The guys are going out for drinks anyway, so do it with the rabbi, is how the article ends. And unfortunately, there are churches in the United States who claim to follow the scripture, who follow a similar pattern. There's a problem with that. A holy God is not always just concerned about the end, but also the means to the end. God's holiness calls calls God's people to do God's will God's way. Uzzah did not take God's holiness serious. One of my professors at Dallas Theological Seminary, Tom Constable, who's actually spoken here at Faith Bible Church, wrote this. We need to practice radical obedience. We need wholehearted commitment to God's will as his disciples. What does it mean to have holy God dwelling among us? It means that we are called to radical obedience. Because God's holiness calls God's people to do God's will, God's way, not my way. Not your way. Now, 
At the end of verse 11, we also see a verse of joy, a phrase of the blessing of having God dwell among us. It says that the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. You remember David said, how can I bring this Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem because poor Uzzah just reached out to touch the Ark and God struck him dead. I'm afraid. I can't, I can't bring the Ark to Jerusalem. How could we possibly survive until word comes to David, hey, you know you left the Ark at Obed-Edom's house? You can't believe what's been happening. I mean, God is blessing him like crazy. And all of a sudden, David said, go get the ark. This time, David realizes that he has to do God's will, but he has to do God's will God's way. And so we read that it's told King David, verse 12, that the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness, with joy, with exultation, to because to have God dwelling among you is a cause for joy and exultation. We see down in verse 17 that David had prepared a tent into which the ark would be placed. This is not the tabernacle. We know from 1 Chronicles chapter 21 verses 28 through 30 and 2 Chronicles chapter 1 verses 3 through 6 that the tabernacle, Israel's meeting place, is still at Gibeon with all, along with the rest of the, the furniture, the, the table of showbread or, uh, and so on. But this is a tent that David prepared for the Ark of the Covenant. Remember how David last time put the Ark on a cart drawn by oxen? He's not going to make that mistake again. I think he came home and read his Bible. Came home, did a little research. And we find priests bringing the Ark, this ten-mile trek from the house of Obed-Edom to Jerusalem. And it says in verse 13, And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox in a fatling. It seems like what it's saying is every six steps the priest took, there's probably a group of priests following this procession, and they were making a sacrifice to the Lord every six steps. You see, David here is demonstrating to God and to the people that it doesn't make a difference just what we do for the Lord, but how we do it. He's honoring the holiness of God. It also tells us in verse 14 that he's wearing a linen ephod. We know from 1 Chronicles 15 verse 27 that he also has on an outer robe of fine linen. You see, he's dressed here as a priest. And we see down a little further in the text that he's offering, in verse 17, burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Well, now David's a king, but he's not a descendant of Levi. 
He does not have, uh, he, he is not one that has been set apart to be able to offer offerings before the Lord. That's only a, the priests. I think we have here just a little precursor. David serving as a king priest, as a foreshadowing of his descendant, who will also be a king priest, Messiah himself, Jesus Christ. Remember what a priest does? A priest builds a bridge between the people and God. He represents the people before God. And that's David foreshadowing what Jesus one day will do as David's son. So we find David rejoicing. Why? Because God is going to be present with his people and he's going to bless his people. That's why we see in verse 18, it says, when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people, to the multitudes of Israel, men and women, a cake of bread, one of dates and one of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. Little confession. I, I have a little stash of dates at my house. I love dates. They are natural deliciousness. And once in a while, I just go into the fridge and sneak a date. How would you like to have a whole cake of dates? Why did David do this? It's a picture of the fact that now that God is in our midst, he's blessing us. David pronounced a blessing on the people. God, may God enrich us. May He give us joy. May He, may He bless us with, in, in, in every way imaginable. You see, that's what happens when a holy God, a God of power and blessing, is able to dwell in the midst of His people. Remember what Ephesians Chapter 1, verse 3, says about every Christian, when Jesus Christ becomes our Savior, when we put our trust in Him, believing that He is God, that He died on the cross and rose again from the dead, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, says that, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Here, David recognizes when God dwells in your midst, he will bless us. Now, David's wife, Saul's daughter, Michael, is like, oh man, you sure made a fool of yourself out there. You weren't dignified at all. And David says, hey, I was rejoicing before the Lord. If you think I wasn't dignified, I don't really care. It kind of reminds me of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 20 and at 1 and chapter 4 verse 10 when he refers to himself as, as fools for Christ. So what if the world thinks we're a fool? My life is dedicated to the person of Jesus Christ. How is it that God is able to bless us when he dwells in our midst? When we not only praise Him and are excited about His power and His blessing, but when we are willing to take His holiness serious. 
when we are willing to follow him with radical obedience. We have a new grocery store that just opened up down the street from our church facility called New Pioneer. And New Pioneer specializes in organic foods. I like going there, but it's expensive. So what my wife and I do is we just stay on the outer part of the store, and when things are on sale, we buy them. Delicious, organic vegetables. A little bit of organic vegetable is not going to hurt me. Now, there's a difference between me buying some organic vegetables at New Pioneer Food Co-op and me saying, I'm only going to eat organic food. Well, that sounds pretty radical. You know how expensive that would be? If I totally limited myself to just eating organics? Oh, man, I... Now, I... I can have some organic vegetables in my diet. A little bit of organics can't help, probably hurt, can't hurt, probably help. But too radical to say I'm going to go all the way organic. Well, that's okay with vegetables, but it's not okay with Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ calls you and Jesus Christ calls me to radical obedience. David has joy here because a powerful God of great blessing who is a holy God is going to dwell among them. Remember Galatians chapter 5 talks about that you and I can have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness in our lives as well. Because we have God dwelling in us. How is that unleashed It's unleashed when we obey with radical obedience. When we don't let sin get in the way of God's ability to replicate Jesus' life through you and through me. You see, God's presence with His people not only comes with power and blessing, but it comes with holiness. God's holiness calls God's people to do God's will, God's way. You might be here this morning and you're not sure, you don't know if you're, if you really even understand what it means to follow Jesus. You don't know if you're in right relationship with God or not. I would encourage you not to leave today without stopping back in our prayer room visiting with one of our elders back there who can give you material. You can go home and look up at your own pace in the Bible of your choice and find out what it actually means to be in right relationship with God. Or you may be here today and, and you, you don't have the joy in your life right now that David does. Maybe you're burdened beyond what you can bear. And I encourage you, just go spend some time praying back in the prayer room this morning. In a few moments, our team's going to come up and sing, help us lead us in a, a song of close. That encourage us as we sing to sing through the grid of this truth that God's holiness calls God's people to do God's will, God's way. Father, we thank you for this passage. Thank you for the reminder that you are not only God of power and blessing, but God who's holy. 
that for you, it's not just the end that's important, but how we get there. That you call us to radical obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.